0: Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. I'm delighted to welcome somebody who's had an extraordinary career. She began by studying at the University of Sydney and then at Berkeley before spending 25 years as one of the top competition lawyers in Australia. She subsequently became a financial regulator and 18 months ago was appointed chair of the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Today's guest, Gina Cascotley. Gina, thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. I'd like to start at the beginning. How did you get into competition law? What attracted you to the field? And what keeps you interested?
1: It's great to be here with you, Nick. Thanks. So actually, I first started deciding that I needed to be at the intersection of economics and law. And so I studied economics law at Sydney University. Economics, because I was just convinced as I finished my teenage years that I wouldn't understand what was happening in commerce or politics if I didn't really understand economics and law, because frankly, I love a good argument. So I wanted to be in there at the crux of those. And studying at Berkeley was a great opportunity for me. I hadn't, they didn't teach competition law at Sydney Uni a long time ago when I went to Sydney Uni, but they certainly did at Berkeley in 86, 87. And it included payment systems and services and also securities regulation with Silicon Valley perspective. So it actually set me up in many ways back in 86, 87, for a lot of the foundations of my career that followed.
0: Gina, you spent many years in private practice before moving into the public sector. Like Sarah Cardell in the UK, you were a highly accomplished competition lawyer before you decided to join the other side, if you like. What have you found to be the biggest adjustments you've had to make? And how has your experience as a private practitioner informed the way you do your job?
1: I think the biggest adjustments have been not only the depth, which I always had, but the incredible breadth of topics that we can have, not just in any week, but on any day. So ranging not just across mergers, enforcement, infrastructure regulation, consumer protection and product safety, consumer data right, UK uh, form of open banking, monitoring of key sectors. and. All in this current time of rising cost of living and a huge extent of community and political concerns. So we have fuel pricing, childcare services, for instance. So any one point in time, many issues are calling out for careful, calm and considered advice and decision-making. And I think great strengths come from private practice in that regard being forensic, being evidence-based and also having a sufficient degree of scepticism and forensic investigative focus. And at the same time, having a really open-minded, active listening approach so that consultation is really effective. And all of that, I think, is the mark of great uh, private practitioners.
0: Gina, there's no private practitioner who's been in the game for 25 years Who doesn't have certain views about the agency that they interact with. So you must have come to the role with some kind of list of things you wanted to do with the ACCC or some observations about the way in which the agency worked that you might want to change. Can you share those with us?
1: It's interesting, Nick, I was very determined that I would come in with a really strong message of continuity. Uh, The Commission has and continues to have a leading reputation amongst agencies in Australia. And I did want all our staff and also the community to have continued confidence. I was also the first woman to lead a central economic agency in Australia. So I wanted to give that sense of a strong hand on the tiller and and to be able to do so with continuity. However, I also wanted to show that we were moving with the key areas of change currently in our economy and community, which has meant an expansion in focus on environmental sustainability, also a continuation and a focus on the digital transformation, and also a recognition that competition and consumer protection and strong service is really important in the care economy was continuity with an expansion and focus in new areas.
0: I'll turn to some of those topics in a second. In preparing for this podcast, I spoke to a few people who know you well, and they all told me that you'd be very much your own person. You do, though, follow somebody who had a high public profile, Rod Sims, and he was pretty vocal on a number of topics. When you talk about continuity, does that extend to similarity in terms of style and profile?
1: In terms of being a really active and strong voice for the work of the ACCC, its absolutely continuity was not necessarily a role I had played before. However, I came in with an absolute knowledge that it is critical for community trust in the ACCC and also to achieve deterrence and a very strong compliance footing that I needed to continue such an upfront approach. We are also doing this in a very collegiate way with my commissioner colleagues, recognising their strong contributions experience as well. And so it's a combination of my leadership and drawing upon and featuring their contributions as well.
0: So you've been doing the job now for about 18 months. How are you finding it? How's it going? And can you tell us a little about what your objectives are for 2024?
1: Overall, I'm finding it fulfilling, inspiring and also challenging. But I took the job to challenge myself as well and push myself in many directions to make this contribution and build upon my experience. So it's what I wanted. Our objectives for the year to come, particularly Looking at key areas of enforcement priorities. So, continuing to have this focus on environmental claims and sustainability on areas in essential services and protections of not only competition but consumers in terms of the terms of, of essential services and also to progress the key areas of law reform that the ACCC is currently seeing as important in these current, I liked your description at the beginning, Nick, of sort of confusion, complexity, and lots of noise. Let's actually distill out all the noise and white noise to what really matters. And from an internal point of view, I am seeking to promote diversity and inclusion and have many different voices able to be heard and supported.
0: Thanks Gina, let's start with merger control. As regular listeners will know, we've had a fascinating few years with the progressive leadership of the US agencies that have litigated a number of cases based on theories of harm that their predecessors hadn't pursued. We've seen highly interventionist enforcement policy in the UK. And just in the last few weeks, we saw the European Commission block a conglomerate merger based on an ecosystem theory of harm of a kind that hadn't been pursued in the past. Your predecessor, Rod Sims, joined his counterparts at the CMA and the FCO in suggesting that merger control had been historically underenforced. I'd like to try to position your view on where you think the ACCC sits on the spectrum. This is a highly stylized view, but suppose, say, the Japanese Fair Trade Commission was being at one or two on the spectrum, and the FTC or the UK, something like eight or nine, and the European Commission, something like five or six. Where do you think the ACCC is on that spectrum?
1: So I'm going to take the liberty of playing with your spectrum a bit, Nick. On a case-by-case basis, we're going to our case-by-case pro- approach remains consistent. We're informed by evidence and careful investigation across the whole spectrum of cases. I think we're absolutely ready to act where called for, and there I would put us at the high end of your of your scale or spectrum. We will be fearless in intervening and be prepared on the basis of evidence to apply uh, new areas of theories of harm, given rapid change, increasing concentration, and I consider increasing barriers to entry and expansion, and therefore it's very important to be able to act before tipping occurs in key sectors. So in those areas, I would put us at the high end of the scale, though if you were to look across all matters and we have the C both in my last eighteen months and each of the years of Rod Sims chairmanship, over 90% of matters were cleared in a in a very short, sort of streamlined fashion. And so if you looked across the whole, you'd say we we were in a balanced position. We intervene where we see A real threat of competitive harm but across all we deliver effective fast-track clearance decisions in the majority of matters where intervention isn't warranted.
0: Gina you've supported a move from a voluntary system of merger control to a mandatory one. Now I can see that such a change may make sense for transactions that have their main geographic nexus in Australia particularly if I understand well from some of the articles I've read, there's been a concern that your informal consultation process may have been overused in recent years. But for global deals that are already subject to mandatory notification and are reviewed by multiple transactions around the world, do you think it's really useful or productive to impose an additional mandatory reporting obligation?
1: Good question. Uh, 1st Rather than that, our informal regime is overused. Uh, I think our sense is that because we have overall an informal regime and only a voluntary merger or formal merger authorization regime, that the in, informal is increasingly being misused. So we're one of a minority of countries that has a voluntary merger regime. And it has worked well over many years, but we're increasingly seeing practical challenges with merger parties pushing the boundaries. They, at times, including in global transactions, don't notify us at all. And we find out from other agencies or from customers who are hearing about the change. Or or They give us selective information uh, about how much information we're provided and what, and increasingly we can get incomplete and incorrect information. And also increasingly they threaten to complete before we finalised our review. Now, in we also find and also that international practitioners will frequently tell me that because we're informal and not mandatory, that the mandatory Condition precedent jurisdictions prioritised over Australia, which does lead us to have less capacity to make an assessment in an informed way about whether we should have concerns. And also, if we're looking for remedies, to actually customise remedies to Australian market conditions. And Australian market conditions can be quite different. Frequently, we can find that due to the size of our economy, which global companies decide to operate in Australia, that we may have many fewer rivals, for instance. And so we do need to have the time to assess these matters. And such concerns and challenges have prompted consideration of whether our regime remains fit for purpose. And it's these differentiations that we think mean that we do need to have mandatory notification to allow the ACCC the proper opportunity to consider the Australian specific market conditions and to ensure in conjunction with cooperating with other agencies, seeking to find efficiencies through waivers, et cetera, in order to not duplicate processes, but still that we make a decision that is appropriate for Australian market conditions.
0: So it's not just about having a seat at the table and having access to information on a timely basis. It's also, in a sense, about reserving yourself a seat at the table and having the possibility to secure remedies that are specific to the Australian market that might otherwise be outside of the jurisdiction of other agencies.
1: Correct. And one other thing, it's apt relief for our market conditions, but there are some circumstances, and this has happened in the past, where due to the market structure in Australia, for instance, if it would be a transition to merger to monopoly, that the transaction should not take place in Australia, including through an absolute divestiture, so that there continues to be sufficient workable competition within Australia.
0: Thanks, Gina. I saw that in one of your first major speeches, you proposed something that, if I understand well, would be quite a significant change to merger control of a kind that I don't think other agencies have adopted to date, namely what would seem to be reversing the burden of proof so that merging parties would need to demonstrate that a transaction was unlikely to harm competition. So my question, Gina, is does this signal a greater concern about making type two errors of approving anti-competitive mergers than type one errors blocking benign mergers? And if the proposed change is enacted, what do you think the practical implications are going to be?
1: As part of our merger reform proposals, we are proposing a clearance test rather than the current prosecutorial enforcement regime, where the ACC or the competition tribunal on de novo review must be satisfied that the transaction would not be likely to substantially lessen competition. Now, actually, a test of exactly this nature in these terms does currently exist in our jurisdiction, which is our merger authorisation regime. It currently is voluntary, but for parties that choose it, and some do, so the test is understood here. It's a formal administrative process that provides immunity to the merger parties if the test is met. We consider that that clearance test should require the merger parties to satisfy us or the Competition Tribunal. There is no likely substantial lessening of competition in order to protect competition. We all know that merger analysis involves predicting the future, And this inevitably involves some degree of uncertainty. And that is particularly the case now where markets are rapidly changing, and there are more and more complex commercial considerations. And our concern is that the current informal regime with an adversarial enforcement system favours a default position for clearance of mergers due to the uncertainty, which means that The public interest bears the risk of harm from anti-competitive mergers that are not prevented currently in our current system. We are looking for our reform proposals to recalibrate the decision on whether a merger proceeds where there is a risk of competitive harm. We want to incentivize parties to provide sufficient information to the ACCC for us or the tribunal to be convinced that the merger is not likely to substantially lessen competition, we want to shift away from a position where uncertainty leads to clearance as the default. That does signal we consider the current economic circumstances of uncertainty, increasing concentration, increasing barriers to entry and expansion in key sectors support greater concern about the clearance of anti competitive mergers as the default. I don't think it is burden of proof. In the traditional legal sense, and it's not so much as a sort of structural presumption in the manner, for instance, that exists in the litigation processes in the US currently, or as proposed to a greater degree in draft revised merger guidelines currently being consulted on by the DOJ and the FTC. It's an administrative decision where the ACCC or tribunal will need to be able to form an affirmative belief that enough evidence has been put before us, but it is not the same as presumption against clearance or a specific burden of proof. It's less formal than that in an evidentiary sense.
0: I see. So it's in part a change in process, a shift from a voluntary to a mandatory system. The burden stays the same in effect, that it's on the agency to make its case. The standard may be formally the same, but if I'm hearing, perhaps the quality of evidence that needs to be adduced for merging parties to demonstrate that there won't be an adverse competitive effect is going to be raised somewhat. So it's going to be harder to get these borderline cases through. Is that the right way to think of this change?
1: It is the right way to think about it and also to note that it is a test we have been working with for some time and so there is knowledge of it by Australian practitioners and we have had quite a number of these formal merger authorisations brought before us in the past 18 months actually in telecommunications, banking, energy and cash armoured carrier services.
0: Gina, when we were speaking earlier on in the podcast, you said that sustainability, building sustainability considerations into antitrust and merger control was one of your prime objectives. And I understand you're consulting on draft guidance on environmental and sustainability claims. So Gina, when I was thinking about the questions I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you about the role for sustainability in merger control. And perhaps you anticipated that question since when we were first in touch About doing this podcast, you've actually taken a decision that does precisely that. I think maybe you're the first agency in the world to take positive account of sustainability considerations in approving a merger that might otherwise have raised competition issues. Can you tell us a bit about the case and your thinking behind it?
1: Yes. So the case you're referring to, Nick, is uh, in relation to an authorization that we have recently brought down to authorise the acquisition by the Brookfield Global Transition Fund. So a global fund where the investors are both not only looking to obtain a return on their investment, but also expressly the mandate includes outcomes and performance in terms of environmental sustainability impact and advancing against Paris Agreement net zero targets. And they were acquiring one of Australia's largest vertically integrated electricity generators and gas and electricity retailers. The competition issue and was expressly transaction brought to us under our formal merger authorisation role. And that test allows us to authorise either on the basis that we are satisfied there is not a substantial lessening of competition or a likely one. Or even if we are not satisfied on that, to authorise on the basis that there is a net public benefit that outweighs the competitive detriment. And we decided in this case that though the transaction brought together Brookfield's active management and minority interest in an electricity transmission network in one of the Australian states together, we the vertically integrated electricity generator and retailer, and therefore concerns about vertical integration. And we did not authorise on the basis of being satisfied on the first test, that there was, we were not satisfied, that there was not likely substantial lessening of competition, though we did mitigate those concerns through ring fencing and separation commitments and audit monitoring, including the provision of reports to the specialist energy regulator. The reason that we were satisfied and granted authorisation was because we were satisfied that the uh, acquisition would result in Brookfield introducing a substantial acceleration in renewable generation and storage in Australia, Through the transition of the fourth largest carbon emitter in Australia, which is what this generation and retailer business involves. And that that was recognized by our community material public benefit, which outweighed the remaining concerns in relation to competitive detriment.
0: Extremely interesting. Thank you. You talked about merger control being a predictive exercise. Of course, you, like other agencies, also have the power to address markets that have become too concentrated. And I read in an interview you gave that you recognise that Australia probably has more concentrated markets than many other jurisdictions. Now, there may be all sorts of reasons for that. But I also understand that the ACCC has brought only two cases under the relevant provision of the law that was amended in 2017. Do you think this represents an enforcement failure on the ACCC's part, or have you been able to address instances of misuse of market power without resorting to litigation?
1: I think it's the latter. I think that we have, the ACCC has been able to address these questions without resort to litigation, and I'll give some examples. And in addition, we have The cases that were taken were important cases and one is still to run and it is very important to not cover that shortly in in a moment. But in addition, we have other regulatory powers that pertain to areas of natural monopoly and, and other infrastructure regulations. So looking at those, we have taken proceedings against MasterCard alleging a misuse of market power and, and also exclusive dealings in respect of tying, in effect, of, of uh, longer-term exclusive dealings with strategic merchants to offer reduced prices for services for credit card processing. That matter we have commenced. The trial has not yet started but it has important example we consider looking across not only payment services and 75 percent of payments in australia all card payments in australia are on debit cards so it is very important but in addition we do see it as an important indication of the sort of issues we are also concerned about in relation to digital platforms markets second matter which was settled on the basis of consent orders related to services in ports in the state of tasmania with a likely effect of substantially lessening competition in markets for towage and pilotage services and given the importance of ports for an export and import economy such as australia that was an important area for which we obtained relief, including a court enforceable undertaking to ensure other entrants and competitors had access to birth space. But just giving a valuable example about the way in which we were able to intervene without getting a litigated outcome, so a non-litigated measure in August 2022, the ACCC accepted a court-enforceable undertaking from our largest telecommunications provider, Telstra, to address competition concerns, where the ACCC conceded that Telstra had registered radio communication sites in low-band spectrum that interfered with the plans by our second largest telecommunications provider, Optus, which will which affected and hindered its plans to roll out its 5G network nationally. So by resolving that matter on the basis of a court enforceable undertaking, we felt that we restored the capacity for a faster rollout of the competing 5G network and we were given by Telstra, an undertaking to deregister all the remaining radio radio communication sites it had registered with the communications regulator in a particular spectrum that would have prevented Optus from gaining early access to expedite the rollout of its of its new five g and expanded five g network so we do think that we have achieved important interventions and an example in terms of infrastructure regulation we have recently concluded a process of resetting the wholesale access terms and conditions including charges for the access to our national broadband network so we have a broad set of in- court interventions non-court interventions on misuse of market power and infrastructure regulatory decision making that do allow us to oversee and intervene in the provision of these sorts of essential services to Australian businesses and consumers.
0: Gina, that's very interesting. The cases you mentioned all seem to have been resolved through changes in conduct. Now, some agencies looking at similar kinds of structural issues have imposed structural remedies. The UK, for example, that broke up ownership of airports and introduced greater competition into the building materials sector. And the European Commission, in at least one case at the moment, is thinking about structural relief. Has the ACCC thought about structural relief to address these sorts of concerns? Or is there a policy bias towards conduct relief rather than structural relief? Or do you see structural remedies Breaking up some industries to address high levels of concentration as something that might happen under your watch
1: certainly there have been structural relief remedies in mergers in Australia and they the A C prefers them to behavioral or conduct relief there is quite a debate happening now including in submissions to a parliamentary inquiry on how we return greater dynamism and productivity to the Australian economy as to whether there should be an express uh, reference in our Act, which we would need to take as a remedy in a court proceeding, though we could then get by consent, for there to be divestitures and breaking up as a remedy to a misuse of market power allegation there is an express divestiture remedy in our act relating to mergers. It's not express in relation to other contraventions. I think our courts do have a very wide discretion in terms of appropriate relief. So. One could say that it's available already. However, it is not expressly there in the manner that it is in relation to mergers. And we can see the rationale for such a power in certain circumstances. And I am aware of that uh, breaking up of airports that was conducted previously in the sort of previous administration prior to the CMA and the benefits that that has brought. And so it is an additional power that is of interest to us.
0: Thanks, Gina. Let me turn to digital regulation, the topic of this era, really. Australia, like the UK, is a mid-sized economy in the world. We see larger jurisdictions pushing ahead with digital regulation. So what scope do you think Australia has to go its own way? And what value do you think a distinct regulatory framework in Australia is going to bring?
1: As you've noted, Nick, we, ACCC, has been advocating for reforms. We brought down a report in September last year recommending that there be designation with targeted service specific codes. We have certainly observed there are significant competition and consumer harms from digital platforms that are occurring in Australia, seen in five years of active monitoring and listening to concerns, including those observed in multiple other jurisdictions, such as self-preferencing, tying, exclusivity agreements, obstructing, switching and interoperability, and withholding access to important hardware, software, and data inputs. We're looking, the reason we have proposed designation and Service specific codes is that we are looking as a mid size economy, as you noted, to move in a direction coherent uh, with other jurisdictions in the world and to achieve overall consistency internationally while being focused on services and competition harms, most important in an Australian context. We think it's clear. That we do need our own regulatory framework because we've seen, and multiple jurisdictions and regulators have observed, that large global or digital platforms operate rationally in their own best financial and profit interest, and that they will not take action except for the action that they're required to take in particular jurisdictions. And therefore, we consider that. We need to be aware that if we don't legislate and provide a sufficient regulatory framework in Australia, then Australian businesses and consumers, which are already heavily and increasingly reliant on digital platform services, will miss out on the benefits that are going to ensue with overseas reforms that are already well along their train of commencing across Europe in particular. And we're aware. Of a legislative reform process underway in the UK as well, and indeed in consideration in Japan, in South Korea, and in India. So, in various jurisdictions in the Asia Pacific region.
0: So, it's less about the power to investigate and intervene with respect to practices that are not being investigated by other agencies, and more about the power to investigate practices that are being investigated and where there is intervention, and to make sure they're being addressed in Australia as well.
1: The one variation I'd say, Nick, is that we anticipate many will be areas of shared concern, as we have seen to date. The list of the concerns that I gave just before will not be a surprise to the people listening to this podcast. However, They may manifest in different ways within Australia. And one of the reasons to have targeted service-specific codes is to ensure we pick out those that have the greatest impact in Australia. And it is also possible that a flexibility that a code framework will give us is to respond quickly, to change it more quickly than primary legislation allows, and to respond to particular Australian circumstances as they develop and to ensure that the remedies and obligations that are in the code are apt for Australian business conditions.
0: Thanks, Jean. Let me turn to cartels now. I've read you're considering making changes to your immunity policy. I'd be interested to know what you have in mind. And in that connection, particularly interested in your thinking on the interrelationship between immunity programs and private damages actions. And whether you see there's a risk that encouraging class actions may perversely perhaps discourage companies from making leniency applications.
1: The ACCC has had a practice of regularly reviewing our immunity program since we had it in place to ensure that it's remaining effective. And we did announce a review earlier this year. We've been getting a lot of stakeholder feedback And from a range of sources and it's still too early to state definitively what changes will come from it however there are two points i would say our immunity program is currently looking healthy looking at the number of immunity applications that we have in the pipeline so i don't foresee major changes also practitioners should be absolutely assured that we will consult broadly once we've taken account of the feedback and once we have a firm proposal before implementing changes. In terms of the very important question there, Nick, about in, interrelationship between immunity programs and private damage damages actions, firstly, we are absolutely supportive of the continued availability of and measures to improve access to class actions under our Act, because such actions are frequently efficient, but also an important means of providing redress for consumers and businesses that may otherwise be unable to obtain compensation for harm caused. However, we do know that the incidence of private class actions, and particularly the risk of the level of damages they may result in can affect the incentives for cartelists to self-report under a leniency policy, and and it is perhaps one might say an exquisite dilemma for cartel participants and their advisors to weigh up the risk of otherwise detection and then penalties and significant actions, including criminal actions, as compared to that follow-on civil risk. Thankfully, to date, our experience is that we're not seeing the risk of facing class actions in Australia has reached a point that parties are unwilling to approach us to seek immunity. They continue to do so. We do not require an admission of contravention. We require an admission of conduct that may be a contravention and either and an admission, or of course, if it is contested in court, findings of the facts that ground a contravention; those findings are able to be under our Act relied upon in follow-on private actions. But we consider there is a balance there because we do not require an admission that it is a cartel contravention; only admission that the of the facts and that the conduct
0: may be a contravention. Gina, you alluded to the possibility of criminal sanctions, exposure to criminal charges, something that the UK has as well. Our experience has been mixed in the UK, to put it mildly. What's experience been like in Australia?
1: I think it's fair to say that given the complexity, additional complexity of Satisfying a test about cartel conduct in the criminal burden of proof, and that it is still relatively young in Australian jurisprudence, that our experience also has been mixed. However, we have had a range of successes criminally, uh, none fully reaching through to a decision in a contested action, but we have had a range in key sectors of plea bargains reached criminally. And those we think are a a keeper and a number recently as well. Those in areas such as waste services, international money transfers, cartel in respect of pharmaceutical ingredients supply. And we see these together with some notable civil prosecutions that we've been successful in that those providing the deterrent effect and a raising of awareness, which is why we have had an increase in applications pursuant to our immunity program.
0: Very interesting. So my final question before the quickfire questions on a different topic. Gina, you're the first woman to head the ACCC, which is groundbreaking, although we actually see many women today heading antitrust agencies around the world. I read an interview you gave to the Guardian newspaper, in which you said that as a strong believer in diversity, you should push beyond your comfort zone. A couple of questions. What do you have in mind? And do you think the glass ceiling has been broken? And if not, what remains to be done?
1: The main things I had in mind there, that I, I had not previously had always vigorously and courageously, I considered, represented the position and interests of my clients. I did not do so as being the loudest voice in the room. I I sought to do so as an astute uh, value adding and strategic uh, voice in the room. And so I now have had to be much more front and center frequently participating and being seen in media, expressing our positions. And that is not sort of second nature to me. So I've need to push myself in that regard. I am still doing so in a very collegiate way, and wanting other voices also to be heard, and that I listen to others. So I think I'm doing so in my own way. But I have certainly pushed myself beyond areas that I was previously occupying. The ACCC has an incredible capacity to promote diversity and inclusion, both internally in terms of our policies for our own people, and both in terms of recruitment and promotion, but also because we represent very vulnerable consumers, many of whom are culturally and linguistically diverse, and also Australian First Nations consumers. and. Uh, it is through that outreach work and our enduring priorities to protect the most vulnerable consumers that I think when we, make, we achieve outcomes there, we'll be breaking the glass ceiling. When we can see that those sorts of outcomes increase greater economic opportunity and protections, then I think we'll really be able to say we've made a real change.
0: Very good. Thank you, Gina. Now to the quickfire questions. When in a couple of decades' time, you look back at the cascot era, the ACCC, how would you like students of the future to think of it?
1: I'd like them to see that we are an immensely trusted for our integrity and for our achievement that has really invigorated areas of competition and given greater protections and outcomes in essential services, particularly in the care economy for Australian consumers.
0: My second question if there's one change you'd make to the Australian competition regime, what would it be?
1: Our merger reform proposal, because it's an important across economy reform at a time of such increasing concentration in our key markets.
0: Gina, your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? My proudest achievement.
1: Looking at my G years was to, together with colleagues, building a group that was two-thirds women, including at the most senior levels, and much greater cultural diversity, and thrilled that coming into the H C there's such a strong commitment in terms of diversity and inclusion. And my greatest regret are the moments when at the times I made the wrong call on prioritising work over family.
0: That's great advice, which has some resonance with me too. And finally, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known?
1: So, inspired my son. I'm a Liverpool FC supporter. And during COVID in remote, remotely conducted examination, mandatory examination by the ACCC, I attended the meeting on screen in Liverpool FC football jersey that said Gottlieb is a player, which had been made for my son, but I was wearing it because it was a day when everybody in our group was wearing their team's football jersey, g Somebody, I'm sure, will have a screenshot of that somewhere.
0: <laughs> and I can tell listeners you're not wearing a Liverpool football shirt today. Gina, thank you so much for a truly fascinating discussion. It's very late your time, so special thank you for staying up. I look forward in a few years time perhaps to circling back with you and seeing how things have been going. I'm Nick Levy, I've been your host today and look forward to welcoming you to the next edition of the Antitrust Review.